at Risen King, we believe, according to Scripture. You know what? Let me back up. You're part of Risen King. Say this with me. At Risen King, we believe, according to Scripture, that salvation is a gift of God's grace received through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the glory of God alone. As I reviewed last week, contained in this statement are five pillars of biblical Christianity, also referred to as the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Sola Gratia. Grace alone is God's motivation for saving us. Solus Christus. Christ alone is our mediator and savior. Sola Fide. Faith alone is the means of our salvation. And soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone, is the ultimate purpose for all things. Last Sunday, I presented Sola Scriptura to you. The Bible's unique origin, perfection, benefits, and role. And this Sunday, and Lord willing, next Sunday, I want to cover the second pillar on our list, Sola Gratia, grace alone. To understand what exactly we're trying to do with this, we are asking scripture, why is there salvation? Why is there salvation? Why does it exist at all? In other words, we want to hear from God's mouth what his reason, what his motivation was, is for saving us. As I studied this week, this subject grew from one sermon to a two-part sermon, and part of the reason for this is not wanting to keep you here for two hours. You're welcome. The main reason, however, is making sure that I have set the stage, not just for a sermon about grace, a sermon about grace and Christ and faith and God's glory. See, what we're talking about today is a crossroads. There's a fork as it were, if a person has a correct biblical understanding of this topic, then I believe that the other things will necessarily follow. And that if you start, if you choose the, the wrong path, what I would say is clearly the unbiblical path in relation to the things that we'll talk about this Sunday, then it is impossible for you to follow, right? Without this stage set, You cannot understand grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, and you will fall short of the glory of God alone in your understanding of salvation. But if you start uh, on the right path, then if there is to be salvation, it is uh, biblically, logically, can we say inevitable, that you understand and see grace alone, shown in Christ alone, received by faith alone alone, and with those things lined out, there's nothing to say but glory to God alone. During seminary, I worked at a marketing company based in Detroit. Uh, They worked primarily with automakers providing training material and and putting on events, which may sound a small case. It was a big business. Uh, I worked as a runner So they worked on doing big, impressive things. I worked as a runner, a a courier or a a gopher 
driving an unmarked white Econoline van. So that, that probably was pretty creepy. Uh, I delivered envelopes, picked those things up, boxes, food, all sorts of other things wherever they told me to go. At times, this involved setting up displays at huge events like the North American International Auto Show. Uh, held in Detroit annually. I don't know. I don't think they've been doing that with COVID, just like everything. The months and weeks, days, even hours leading up to events like this or other things would involve building things, printing materials, and getting uh, everything set up. It was messy, and it was unimpressive. Uh, carts filled with, with black drape. Um, rolls of, of gaffer's tape, which is like duct tape, but not quite as sticky. It comes up a little bit easier from surfaces and used to, to secure uh, power cables or HDMI cables or mic cables. And so all these boxes I'd moved everywhere in my white, unmarked Econoline van. And it's like, this is nothing. Like, this isn't impressive at all. But by the time the show started, everything was transformed and always looked amazing. The process tended to disillusion me. Like this, like I know the guys that do this stuff. This isn't that impressive. But the end product always amazed me as all the background work paid off. Uh, they took time to properly build the stage, and it helped to display the product in an amazing way. If you set the stage properly, it makes the presentation uh, better. Today, I'm, I'm building a stage. Uh, if God permits, we'll stand on that stage for the next four weeks, proclaiming the glory of the gospel that, according to Scripture alone, is by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. The word gospel means good news. And has been, as, as has been said before, in order to appreciate the goodness of the good news of the gospel, you need to have a grasp of the bad news that precedes it. Today, I want to lay out for you some really bad news. Allow me to demonstrate the points of my sermon in an equation. Um, students, as you start to groan that you have to think in logical terms, school year is coming, just trying to get you a little warmed up today. So we're going with an equation on this. God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment. God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment. Take these uh, point in turn. First, I'm going to talk about God's righteousness. God is righteous. And when we want to understand God's righteousness, we could start with the idea of his moral purity. God is entirely not sinful in his character, in his thoughts, and in his actions. One author said, there is not the slightest taint of evil desire, impure motive, or unholy inclination about God. He possesses what one author said is entire freedom from moral evil. Entire freedom from moral evil and absolute moral perfection. Well, other authors, it's good. What about scripture? The scriptures certainly pre present God as such in his moral purity. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Our heavenly father, God, 
creator, ruler of all things, is perfect. Jesus doesn't call people to be a slightly better version of themselves. And he doesn't say, be as righteous as the Pharisees. He said in this same sermon, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the professional righteous people, the Pharisees, right? Their, their job and their role and their pride in being perfect law keepers. And he says, unless you're better than the best person that you know, you're not good enough. You need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Your righteousness, again, needs to exceed the most righteous person that you know in order to meet God's standard. But that's, you know, not a comparison, right? Perfect. God's righteousness certainly exceeds the most righteous person that you know. God is perfect. Other authors of scripture talk about this same idea, like Habakkuk, Verse 113 describes God as, he says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, right? Are, are we supposed to understand this? Like if things become blurry, uh, like the world is, is censored somehow from God and he can't see evil. If that was the case, then how can we talk about omniscience? Because the world is full of sinfulness and evil. That's not what this is talking about. I think this is talking about revulsion, this is talking about disgust with sinfulness. You know, what violence or crime makes you sick to your stomach? I'm not going to give examples. What news stories are too heinous for you to watch? It, it is yet to be seen if these will end up being beneficial tools in our cultures and lives, but it certainly makes all sorts of different videos of heinous acts instantly available to a worldwide audience. Uh, murders and, and, and beatings and things, they're just there. It's like, do we, do we watch uh, desensitized to them because we've seen it so much in, in videos, in, in movies, right? And there's a difference between CG violence and real violence. And considering what has taken place to somebody, what, what's too, too much, too heinous for you to watch? What sins appall you? We all have a threshold of something that we can't, like, oh, that's, that's too much. Do you know which sins cause God to turn away in disgust or anger? All of them. All of them. God's threshold is perfection. And anything that crosses that line, his eyes are too pure to look on that, we could say, with, with pleasure or with enjoyment or as if it were acceptable. Psalm 5, the psalmist declares, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Not does he not want to look at it. He refuses to allow it to dwell with him. And then God, when we talk about God being righteous, right, he has his personal moral purity, but then that also influences how he interacts with other things. 
as judge. God in his righteousness, according to his standard of moral perfection, evaluates or judges his creation, specifically humanity. Like your dog has never sinned against God. Your cat has never sinned against God. You have sinned against God. And you will be judged according to his standard. That further point down the sermon. Abraham speaks of this. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or right? God, you wouldn't punish innocent, righteous people, right? You wouldn't uh, Give over to condemnation those who are morally pure as you are and innocent. Of course not. But that doesn't actually change anything of God's interaction with his creation. For as we'll see later, there are none righteous. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. Psalm 11, the Lord tests the righteous But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. And then another book that we can get to, the book of Nahum, a smaller, one of the minor prophets, because the book is smaller, not because he's less inspired or less important, just this book is smaller than Isaiah's. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. The NIV renders that phrase, he will not let the guilty go unpunished. We're like, well, Who's Nahum to say that? Nahum is quoting God who spoke those words in his revelation of his glory to Moses as Moses was being protected from the righteous glory of God. God said, I will not let the guilty go unpunished. God is righteous in himself and in his judgment. And just as God himself is perfect in his righteousness, so he will judge humanity according to the standard of perfect righteousness. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Not even the smallest sin will escape his notice or will escape his judgment. Not your most inconsequential lie or your briefest lustful glance or the smallest speck of your coveting, you will not get away with it because God is righteous and a righteous judge. And he is righteous with a beautiful, holy, perfect righteousness. God's righteousness plus our sinfulness our sinfulness. In Genesis, the Bible moves from the origins of the universe and humanities in chapter one and two to the origins of sin in chapter three. It's the familiar story of Adam and Eve. 
in the garden, listening to the lie of the serpent. See, Adam knew the command of God not to eat the fruit from that one tree, but he chose to reject God's rule and disobey God's command. In Romans later, Paul explains that Adam, as the first man, had a unique role. He was what we could call our, our federal or our a federal head or our official representative before God. And a representative makes decisions for and really would suffer consequences for, and, and the decisions that they make trickle down and affect all those that represent, right? That's what a representative does. When Adam as the representative human, sinned against God, the guilt of his sin, Adam's sin, was placed on him and all of humanity after him. In Adam, Paul said, all die. His sin and his guilt, the guilt of his sin, that one sin, that one stain on what would have otherwise been perfect righteousness, And can you have any stains on that which is perfect righteousness and it maintains its perfection? Is a 99.9 perfect? No. His sin and its guilt were on your record before you were even born. We start off guilty because of Adam's sin and then we get busy adding to our guilt with our own sin. David explains this, the psalm that we sang this morning, Psalm 51.5, talks about the fact that we're born with what's referred to as a sinful nature. We are bent towards sin. We are predisposed to it, even from conception, Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was infected from the womb with sin. We can't help but act like our spiritual father. And when we're born, do you know who our spiritual father is, according to scripture? The devil. Might have been the reading this morning. I don't remember. It's certainly in that passage. You, well, he said, you are of this world. In other places, he says, you are of your father. Oh, Abraham, God. No. Your father is the devil, and you act like your father. That is true of us. The New Testament often describes our sinful nature as our flesh. It's not that there's something wrong with our skin. It's just, it's just how he describes this broken, sinful heart that is inside of us and it has infected all of us. We are born living in or according to these sinful desires that rule and reign inside of us. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Might not please God? Maybe? Maybe not? Cannot. Those who are in the flesh, we're all born in the flesh, cannot please God. God's righteousness and our sin has created a separation. See that imaged in Adam and Eve being removed from the presence of God. 
Isaiah elaborates on this. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We're described throughout scripture as being spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually enslaved, even spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The pervasive, all-encompassing effects of sin have also been described as total depravity or radical corruption. See, the problem is our sin is so ingrained in us that we are unwilling and morally unable to change who and what we are. And although some would argue that you can act contrary to who you are, I don't see how that's possible because you are you. So you can't not be you, right? You can change, but you can't not be you. You're going to do what you're going to do based on who you are. Despite what other people think you ought to be, I like food. I like lots of different types of foods. I don't like all foods. And one food that I don't like is olives. I like olive oil. I like pickles. I like pickled peppers. Peter, never mind. But I don't like olives. I love olive oil in cooking, but I don't like olives. This makes Leanne marvel. We were having a conversation just the other day. I don't remember what it was, but she had olives. I did not have olives. I didn't have olives because I don't like olives. You know, it doesn't make sense, she said, that you don't like olives. You like pickles. I do like pickles. You like olive oil. I do like olive oil. You should like olives. I don't like olives. But I like you. So I'll try olives again. Not the first time. And I tried the olive. And I didn't like the olive. Because I don't like olives. So whether you, my lovely wife, or anyone else thinks I should like olives, I don't. So unless something about me changes in my taste buds, I will never like olives. So I just will like them. No. (laughs) I don't, and I don't want to. There's lots of other foods that I can eat. I'm going to act according to who I am, and I am morally... (laughs) I am uh, earnestly decided against olives because I don't like them. I'm not going to change. What about you can change? Jeremiah asked this question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Well, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Make yourself taller. Make yourself shorter. Change your eye color, not just with contacts. I mean, really change it. Change your biology. You can't. You can't change your nature. You are what you are. And what you are is a sinner. And you can't change that on your own. Paul quotes from the Old Testament to summarize this whole idea Well, and inspired, Romans 3, he says this, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one. 
understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Later, he reiterates with this memorable phrase, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's perfect righteousness is glorious and you fall short of it. In case you've completely missed my point and Paul's point and Nahum's point and Jeremiah's point and Abraham's point, God's point, God is righteous. You are not. I'm not talking about somebody else. I'm talking about you. You are guilty in Adam. Sin is natural to you. You sin against God with your thoughts and your words and your actions. You sin by what you do and what you don't do. On your own, you have no ability to do what pleases God. Sin has thoroughly infected you. God is righteous and you are not, and neither am I. Some raise the objection that this is an overstatement. After all, look at all the good things that happen in the world. It is, it is amazing to me. This kind of stuff goes around the internet a lot, right? My faith was restored in humanity because this guy rescued a squirrel. Like, what? I think we have different definitions of faith being restored in humanity. I'm reminded of goodness because picked up litter. What are you talking about? Good things happen in the world. You know what? Good things do happen in the world. Better than squirrels and trash. Lots of good things happen in the world. But here's the important point that I want to make. It's social good does not equal moral righteousness. In case you can't see the screen clearly, that's not an equal sign. That's the not equal sign. That is not an equal sign. That is a not equal sign. So if you are writing this down, you write the equal, you got to draw a line through it or it's heresy. <laughs> I don't want to speak heresy. I don't want you to write heresy. Social good does not equal moral righteousness. In other words, what is good in our eyes is not good enough in God's eyes. What is good in our eyes is not good enough in God's eyes. However, we have a hard time accepting the difference between these two. What we see as good, what God sees as good. So maybe this illustration will help. If you look back at times of war and Every side in a war has its own propaganda, its own publications. Successful propaganda strategies in times of war require 
broad brush stereotyping. It has to be that way. Allied posters during World War II, if you consider just those, like American posters, our own propaganda, right? It wasn't just the Germans that had propaganda. We had propaganda. And if you look at those posters during World War II, every bullet, every bomb was specifically paid for by war bonds and built in factories and, and then shipped to kill Adolf Hitler. That was what every bullet and every bomb was bought, built, and shipped for. He was the enemy. Sounds good. See, but that's not how war works. Right, the bullets and the bombs and the tanks and the boats that were sent to kill Hitler, those, those bullets weren't fired at Hitler. They were fired at sons and hot brothers and husbands and fathers. And the bombs built to kill Hitler were dropped on factories filled with workers, workers that included daughters and sisters and wives and mothers. And those factories were in cities. Cities contain homes, homes contain children. And this isn't a war is bad or war is good illustration. It's a war is ugly illustration. And there is always collateral damage. Consider a more modern example. Should the American military destroy a terrorist cell planning the next 9-11 attack? I'm sure we would all say yes. They should be stopped. I'll ask another question. Should the American military bomb a home where family and friends are gathered for a birthday party or a funeral? And I'll say, oh, no. What if those two things are at the same place and at the same time? And the rightness or wrongness of the action depends entirely on your perspective. It's not like the... Like anyone on, on any side, uh, like, well, you know what? Let's keep our base really separate from all collateral damage and we'll raise the flag of we're doing war stuff now. But then when we have visitors, we'll lower it, we'll lower the flag, we'll put up the peaceful flag, right? And we'll, we'll make sure yeah, everybody knows the children here, no war stuff's happening, don't bomb us, but we'll put back up the now we're planning your, our attack against you flag. See, it doesn't work like that. Matter of fact, it intentionally doesn't work like that to try to play on the sympathies of people to not do those type of things. And that's not just like, oh, those terrorists. No, no, that's everybody. Right? That's just how war works. And whether it's right or whether it's wrong depends on your perspective. And see, unless we are careful, careful to be biblical in our thinking, and you aren't biblical naturally, in your thinking, neither am I. So unless you're careful to be biblical in your thinking, we will fail to see our sinfulness from God's perspective. What do we see? We see birthday parties. And we see helping old ladies cross the street, which I do take issue with because nobody does that anymore. Not because we hate old ladies, but it's just, I don't remember the last time I've seen an old lady needing help crossing the street. But that's just sort of like the go-to, right? People help old ladies across the street. Other than, I guess, Josie with Anna. Anybody helped an old lady cross the street recently? I, like, I really, I doubt it, but 
That's what we see. We see birthday parties, helping old ladies cross the street, parents loving their kids, strangers helping strangers. Our faith in the goodness of humanity is restored. But what does God see? God sees rebels. God sees lawbreakers. God sees thieves and murderers and adulterers. God sees enemies. God sees sinners. God looks at humanity. He sees sinners. Some might argue, we're not that bad. In a simple review of the Ten Commandments, and you add on to that the heart-penetrating teachings of Jesus reveal the truth of our utter sinfulness. You've never hated, never lusted, you've never coveted, you've, you've never dishonored God. Come on. I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know because your own conscience, your own conscience accuses you that you do not meet any form of moral uprightness. Even if your standard is less than the biblical requirement, nobody thinks they're doing everything that they should do. You know you are guilty. You know that you fall short, whatever the standard is. And that's not just like conservatives do and Liberals don't, right? Everybody recognizes, you know, I, I wasn't good enough. I've tried to make changes. I have further that I need to go. We all know that we all fall short. See, but what we're falling short of is the glory of God and his righteousness, not our own standard. Well, some might argue, come on, all right, fine, it's true. But nobody's perfect. Give me a break. That's where you'd be wrong. Because while you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect, and no one else we've ever met is perfect, it's not true that nobody's perfect because God, God is perfect. See, not perfect. God is perfect. And his son, Jesus, lived for over 30 years on this earth, same earth that we walk on, suffering and being tempted just like we are, didn't get a pass, yet he never sinned. Jesus is perfect. God is righteous. As we consider those type of thinkings that, that um, not as bad as you're saying, or come on, I, nobody's perfect. We're, we're shifting into an unbiblical thinking. We're, we're thinking from our own perspective, and there's a huge error that just continues to grow and persist in Christianity today. Broadly speaking, as one author put it, we no longer really believe that nobody deserves salvation. Might be like, God is righteous or maybe not quite. We're sinful, but maybe not quite. And really, things are going to balance out in the end. They, they don't deserve that. It's not true. We no longer believe that nobody deserves salvation, but we need to be renewed in that. Nobody deserves salvation. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one escapes that. No one is righteous but God alone. And while it is true that we're not as bad as we could be, we're not. We're not as bad as we could be. It is also true that we are worse than we want to admit. 
We are sinners. To return to our equation once more, God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment. There's a clear pattern found in Scripture. When God's righteousness meets humanity's sinfulness, when these two come together, the result is punishment or condemnation or judgment. It's not a, what is it, an an immovable object and an unstoppable force. No, God is the immovable object, unstoppable force, and crushes all those that would oppose him. We see this throughout scripture. We see Adam and Eve cursed by God and expelled from the Garden of Eden in judgment because of their sin. Simple sin. It wasn't that bad. It was just fruit. What's the big deal? Nobody's perfect. No, God is perfect, demands perfection, In response to less than perfection, which is sinfulness, in judgment. In the days of Noah, God looked upon the sinful corruption of humanity that had filled the earth, and he responded with the flood as judgment, wiping them out. God heard a great outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah that their sin was very grave, so he rained down on those cities and their inhabitants, men, women, children, rained down on them sulfur and fire from heaven, burning them to ashes in judgment. Peter, are you one of those uh, sulfur and fire, fire and brimstone preachers? Yes, because Jesus said that. And he wasn't the first one. Pharaoh of Egypt refused to heed God's words through Moses to let the Israelites go. So God sent the 10 plagues to judge Egypt, destroying their crops, destroying their livestock, and killing all of their firstborn sons in judgment. When God's righteousness meets man's sinfulness, the response is judgment, punishment. People of, the peoples of Canaan, young and old, men and women and children were utterly annihilated by Joshua and his armies at God's command as judgment for generations of wickedness and idolatry. Then Israel and Judah, God's own people, ignored his laws, worshiped idols, so they were besieged and conquered and exiled from their land in judgment. And the nations that God used to conquer them did that in sinful ways, refusing to submit to God. So the Assyrians who had conquered Israel were conquered by the Babylonians in judgment. And the Babylonians that had conquered Judah and refused to submit to God were conquered in judgment by the Persians. Those peoples were likewise like the Canaanites, like the Egyptians, like the Canaanites, like the Israelites. They were unrighteous and arrogant and idolatrous, so they too were destroyed in judgment. And then an example that we see in the timing of Scripture, but beyond what's covered in any type of a narrative, is the city of Jerusalem where Jesus himself wept over the coming judgment because they had refused to submit and repent. The leaders and the nation of Israel rejected Jesus, God's own son, 
who was sent to be their Messiah and their Savior. So God sent the Roman army to utterly destroy Jerusalem in AD 70 in judgment. Almost 2,000 years ago, it's never been restored to what it was. How many warnings do we need before we'll pay attention? God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment. And the ultimate judgment, the final punishment, is not physical death. It's described as eternal death and suffering, the infinite wrath of a righteous God being poured out on sinners in hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, a fiery furnace in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the Lord Jesus Christ reveals to the Apostle John what the final judgment will look like in Revelation 20. He says this, I saw a great white, think moral purity, think righteousness, a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You deserve this punishment. I don't care if you're great or small, I don't care if you're young or old. I don't care what other people have said about you. You shouldn't care what other people have said about you. You shouldn't care what you think about yourself. You need to know from God's righteous perspective, you are a sinner. And a sinner who deserves punishment. I deserve this punishment. It is terrible a terrible punishment. Some might argue that's too terrible. That's, that's an unfair sentence. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. God should punish sinners some other way. I, I would share that desire. But see, the problem is we're all among the guilty and in no sense of a definition of justice, do the guilty get to determine what the right punishment is? Never in the history of true justice would a judge say, how long do you think you should go to jail? How big do you think your fine should be? Sir, would you like the death penalty or would you like to go free? Let me think about that for a little while. That's absurd. 
You are among the guilty. It's never justice for the guilty to determine their own sentence. God's judgment against our sin is terrible. And it is deserved. And it is permanent. It is eternal. And it is coming. And that is the bad news. God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our punishment. But there isn't just bad news. There's also good news. The good news, kind of continuing the equation, picking up at that sinfulness part, our sinfulness plus something equals our salvation. Deliverance from the judgment that we deserve. Our sinfulness plus something equals our salvation. And the answer is either God's grace or our merit. Those are the two potential answers. You either deserve salvation or you don't deserve salvation. That's not a sliding scale. That's on or off. That's black or white. That's That's a one or that's a zero if you're a binary computer nerd. Only two options. You either deserve it or you don't deserve it. And considering what scripture says about God's righteousness and our sinfulness, how could anyone say that we deserve salvation? That God, you know, he just should. Just seems like the right thing to do. He shouldn't punish us like we deserve. So so inserting that, saying that we deserve salvation, would make this equation. God's righteousness plus our sinfulness equals our salvation. Do you see the absurdity of that? That is more absurd than saying two plus two equals 173. It's not just wrong. It's ridiculously wrong. Like we put five, be like, well, maybe they're, maybe they're just bad with their fingers. Like I had to think of an absurd answer that wouldn't make any sense. Didn't take me long. Something new has to enter the equation in order to change this. It can't just be God's righteousness. Our sinfulness equals our salvation. Our sinfulness plus something else. Two options. The equation is either our sinfulness plus our religion equals our salvation or our sinfulness plus God's grace equals our salvation. There are countless variations of the our religion scheme. One of them confronted strongly by the reformers in the 16th and 17th centuries. Similar things that we need to confront. Countless variations of what religion is. Your misconceptions of Christianity could fall into this. Thinking that your participation equals your salvation. There is one version of God's grace equaling our salvation. Scripture alone, so two options, our religion, God's grace. What fills in the equation? And scripture alone gives us the amazing answer. Listen to Paul explaining the good news to the church in Rome. Romans 5, verse 20, where sin increased Grace increased all the more. 
there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And there's more sin in you than you ever want to admit. But grace increases, abounds beyond that in Christ Jesus. Lord willing, we'll dive in more deeply to understand God's grace next week. To close, I'm going to ask you to listen closely to a perfect explanation of grace from God's mouth in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great Love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace shown in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Please take some time this week to consider this passage on your own, with a friend, with your family, with your small group, with some stranger that you end up with. I don't care. Think about this passage. And as we consider it, may the Holy Spirit help us to believe and marvel and delight in the grace of God available to sinners like us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, you are righteous, and we are not righteous. We were, we were born in sin, and we deserve the punishment, and we just heap up more and more of that as we go about our lives, and yet your grace has intervened to save us in Jesus Christ, not our own doing. Convince us of these things for the first time in bringing to new life for the millionth time. Your grace is, is given to sinners. Please teach us. Call those to, to life that that are, remain in death and help us to, to marvel that you have raised us up with Christ. Amen.